0: I am beyond excited to bring you this episode that kicks off season two of Let's Make Work Human. We're talking to Eleanor Beaton, who is my coach. Hey, she is not spilling the beans on me, y'all. Sorry. Eleanor is the founder and CEO of Safi Media, an education and coaching company for women entrepreneurs like me, committed to advancing global gender equity through women's entrepreneurship. Eleanor is on a mission to double the number of women entrepreneurs who scale past a million dollars by 2030. You can learn more about her in the show notes, but suffice it to say, Eleanor has reached millions of women around the world. We cover a lot of ground in this episode, from saying hell no to unpaid internships, to asking the question, who are those toxic leaders out there anyway? With Eleanor, we touch on how being super awesome at something doesn't mean you will succeed on a team, and how you can actually be a terrible leader and still make money. Darn it. Let's have a listen. Imagine if work was actually good for people. Not just for a few people, but for everyone in every job. Sadly, work today is often not only not good, but is actually terrible for the human beings who work there. We can do better. On this podcast, my friend and colleague May Ratz and I, Mo Carrick, with our amazing guests, bring you both the hard questions and the real solutions to reimagining and resetting every workplace, from the tiny mom and pop to the mega company, to be good for people. When we thrive at work instead of just
1: survive, everyone wins.
0: Let's take a look at what it takes to make work human. All
1: right. Hello. We've got Eleanor and Mo. Mo and May. Mo, will you tell us who we're chatting with today? Yes, I'm
0: so excited, May. So good to see you. And so excited about our guest today, Eleanor Beaton, who is, for many people ask me all the time, if I have a coach. And the answer is Yes. And it's Eleanor Beaton. And I would say her entire team at SAF Media. You've heard Eleanor's formal bio. But for me, the energy of having this conversation on the podcast today is just so high because of the level of respect I have for Eleanor. Also, how much I have learned by her side in terms of how to lead our business. So I'm going to save the accolades for the bio because we want to use every minute to give our audience a chance to hear from Eleanor Beaton herself. Thank you for being here.
2: Oh, I'm so excited to be here. And that respect is so mutual.
0: We'll just jump right in. And one of the things that I think a lot about, and you have, of course, helped me, this is what I'm going to be saying this whole podcast is, and you have helped me think about this. (laughs) Is this whole idea of like, why do we do what we do? whether we're working a job that's an entry level job for us, or we're working running a company like you are, it's important, I think that we all have a sense of what is our purpose. And I think I know this because I probably heard this from you. But I'm curious about we know some days are just plain old work, like you just have to get her done. But at the heart right now for you, Eleanor, with Safi Media, and with everything you're doing in your work, what is it that really gets you motivated to do what you do? Why do you do what you do fundamentally
2: right now? I feel like I have two answers for that. One is just this internal joy part of it. And then the other is this sense of purpose. And so I'll start with a purpose. And the thing that drives everything that we do at Safi is to create and advance a model of economic growth that actually nourishes the planet, one woman owned business at a time. That's what we do. We don't have all the answers. A big part of how we do that is bring together, like create models, bring together really brilliant people like yourselves, work those models, collectively gather the learnings and iterate and improve and enhance. But currently, our model of economic growth globally has huge consequences for the planet, for well-being. Sometimes I drive my car too much, but what I really look at is how we start to create broader systemic change to make the act of economic growth better for the planet, better for people. And that is a big question. It's like a big, juicy question that's probably going to be my life's work, even though the way that I attack that problem, I bet will change and evolve over time. So that's a bigger thing. From a joy perspective, what really lights me up is having conversations with really smart people. Like That is like oxygen to me. And that's a lot of what coaching is. It's what podcasting is about. It's what podcast guesting is about. It's what research is about. So that is just in and of itself a huge joy. And it really is behind a big purpose of the work. It's an end in and of itself.
0: Oh my gosh, I love the dual answer so much. And thinking about the imperative that's really behind the work that you do is so critical. We'll circle back to that a little bit, particularly around that space that's specific to women entrepreneurs. But I was struck, I was listening as you were talking to what I know I hold in my heart a lot, and May, it's something you and I talk about a lot, which is that as parents, We know that our kids will be future workers, future employees, and also we're going to live with whatever it is that we leave behind. So that kind of higher order purpose that drives you that says, like, actually, we have an opportunity to make a difference with the ways that we run our businesses on the world for the environment, for the economic growth, for the familial and community health. It's just really powerful that you went there first. And then the other piece I love that you said is about the joy of it. It's something I talk about a lot in our client work, which is that work should be joyful. It should be joyful. And let me just say, Honora, you've hit your stride loving working with intelligent people with the Anchor of Intelligence podcast, because it's just, <laughs> the podcast was great before when it was called Power, Presence, and Position. It's still yeah. at its you. But the thing that I'm really digging is that provocative intellectual inquiry with your guests yeah. that are coming in. And I certainly see that in you. I see that joy in you as you work with me and with us. In the
2: oh, that's so-, so cool to hear. Yeah, because it's really, it's incredibly fun to follow, to really understand where am I at my best and then to find ways to bring that to life. It's interesting though. I'd be so curious about what you guys think about this. And this is all, of course, about work, <laughs> the world of work and the culture of work. I feel as though this idea of the joy and fun- uncovering opportunities to really explore that and to have that, I have reflected on this a lot, and I feel like it's both something you exercise and also something you earn. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you guys feel the same way, because sometimes when I peruse through like LinkedIn, I fear That we hear so much about the joy that everyone gets to exercise and just have. But I'm also like, yeah, but there's also this part that it gets so much more when you've been able to do the work to create opportunities to do it at a higher level, which for me is what anchored intelligence has become. So yeah, I think that's a key part of it.
0: I love that. May I be curious
1: about your answer on that before before I answer (laughs) that? What about earning the joy? Yeah. It's hard for me because it's hard for me to parse out paying your dues from earning joy. And so that's just sitting in my own loop of do I have to take an unpaid internship in order to get joy? Because how many of those do I got to do? Or are we Mm -hmm. talking about earning joy in a way of there is more outside the ceiling, push hard to get outside the ceiling, if it's the latter, then I'm for it. Absolutely. If it's the first one, I'm like, who I want to push against that. Like yeah. I want to be space for everybody. But the seeing beyond the limits offered to you, I think is we still have miles to go in terms of how much sweat do I have to do to push past the ceiling that I see. And then how much sweat can I ask for the system around me to also push to help move that ceiling also. Mm-hmm. I think there's a little bit of a like the place that I want to I want to push a little is like how much are we putting on one person to do that, and then how mm-hmm. much of it is like we collectively as a working world need to open the windows a little bit. Is there yeah. can we just show what the possibilities of joy are? Because what what am I pushing for? Mm-hmm. What I don't even know it until I can see it. And that's do I want my daughter to work? Not really. Do I want my daughter to work for people like the two of you? Yes so I'm like i want her to see the windows open to the like joy that it can be like to work with women like you and i want the world to look more like that when she gets there but mm-hmm. i don't know that was a messy answer but oh, no i love yes, it man. i just yeah <laughs> hell no to those hell no to those
2: unpaid internships My who God. doesn't do unpaid internships small women owned businesses it's like the Condé Nasts of the world are all yeah. over the unpaid internships. And sometimes I'm just like, I do not understand. See, your business model is broken if you cannot afford <laughs> to pay people. What was it? It's a Tori Amos song. God, sometimes you just don't come through. Do you need a woman to look after you?
1: <laughs> oh, my God. Yes, indeed. I mean, indeed. Yes. Eleanor, have you heard the story about how I offered to do free work for Mo when I first no. started the job? No. And I sent an I email that was like, please hire me. I will do anything, please. I'm so desperate. I would love to work for you. I really want to do this. I will do anything. Here's a few holes that I've noticed. Please let me come. And yes. I was like, also, I will do whatever for free. And she wrote back and she was like, I'm too busy to have coffee right now. And also, we don't work for free. And I was like, oh. <laughs> <laughs> Dang it. Oh Okay, God. you're
2: right. Yeah. Oh, so my gosh. I <laughs> yeah, I know. Yeah. And yet you showed this like spark and in the well, right hands, in the right structure, yeah. I should say, yeah. that, you know, there's this give and take where it's like people are allowed to produce great things yeah. and be compensated for that.
1: And yeah, yeah it's about the structures. And, it, yeah. and what's okay and what's not okay. I think mm. what you're naming is it is okay to not feel joy all the time. And it is okay to demand joy from your work. And those things, I think, don't get said often enough or early enough in a career. And yeah. so it's like they just drag through things that don't they don't have to do or aren't giving them joy or aren't on the path to joy. Does that make sense? So mm-hmm. it's relieving to hear you say that there is joy yeah. in work and you can have it and that you got to work. It's good. Yes. What do you think,
0: yeah. Mel? I just love this conversation so much because I we talk a lot at Momentum about how thriving at work and being happy at work are not the same thing. Because I think that the Silicon Valley effect of surface perks that we that we have somehow been lulled into believing matter for people are actually not what's keeping them in, enlivened and engaged in their work. It's actually not that. We have copious amounts of data that tell us that that's the case. And yet it does feel the, as though a lot of people are really unhappy at work or the joy is not present for them. And that makes me really sad. And it's interesting, May, I was really struck with when you said, do you want your daughter who's three now? Do you want her to work? Not really. I found myself thinking, oh, no, you do. Come on, May, like you do want her to work because because when she works, in my lived experience, she gets so much back. She gets like a sense of purpose. She gets meaning. She also gets financial remuneration to allow her to afford to in our capitalist society, which unfortunately we do live in, or fortunately, however you see it, she gets to earn the safety and security and and experiences that she wants. So for me, that's really important. And that's partly because I'm from the house of work. Work is a huge part of my identity and want that. I want that for my children. I want that for your children. But by the same token, yeah, is work fun all the time? Will Crosley probably have some terrible jobs? Yes, I see that in my own children. I felt it myself. And that for me is just sometimes the process until you, and this is where I went with what you said, Eleanor, about earning joy. Earning joy includes doing the internal work to find out what it is in my work that is joyful for me which requires us to not have to buy the sort of soul sucking dynamic. I think I heard you referencing, May, which is I have to work and work is by its very nature joyless. Mm -hmm. And so I should just set my expectation that for those hours that I'm working, I'm actually not living. Mm -hmm. And for me, it's like, no, no, that's the problem (laughs) because Mm -hmm. we spend so much time at work but we need to do the internal work and the external work to find a way to make sure that joy does show up for us. And knowing that it's not happy all the time and it's not joyful all the time.
2: The other thing here that I think is really important to consider is what is joy? So what Mm -hmm. is joy in work? And to me, my favorite definition of joy is actually flow, that flow state. From the work from Doctor Bihali, "Cheek Sent which is it's where the challenge and your skill level just meet. So it's just it's like you're reaching at your tippy toes at the your left the level of your skill and the challenge that's that you are tackling it meets you there, and so to do it you are absorbed. You're absorbed, and when you're in that flow state, you lose sense of time. You just feel completely absorbed. And that is the same state when kids are playing, completely absorbed in what they're doing. And for me, and to honestly, can we spend eight hours a day or whatever your workday looks like if it's five, like whatever, can we spend? No, it's it would be <laughs> totally draining. But as long as there are good, healthy chunks of my working life where I feel like that is the case, that is true then, then that's good. In many ways, it's like that other part of the work that I have to do to be able to get to that piece. That's my earning of it. (laughs) Like that's the, so I'll give you an example. We're talking about the podcast and the podcast is awesome. And as an independent podcast podcast, creator and producer, like so many folks, we don't have big sponsorship deals. Maybe we don't want to take sponsorship money because we want to be very independent in terms of how we do it. So that means that in order to actually, as a human and live in the world, to be able to do the Anchored Intelligence podcast, there's a big, there's lots of things that I quote unquote need to do in order to be able to have that freedom, to have that show be what I want it to be. So Mm -hmm. this is such an intriguing, to me, I just think it's such an intriguing. What does joy mean? Do we need to be joyful 24-7? What's the right dosage? Because I don't even think that eight hours of joy per day at work is the proper dosage.
0: (laughs) It's a lot of joy. And joy (laughs) only happens in the contrast. You know what I mean? I think for me, that's where it's it's almost like any kind of pleasure or like it's in the contrast that makes it joyful and I was thinking about this weekend because you both probably know this but my eldest son is a music teacher and a musician and he's right now on his own so not associated with his job associated he's producing an album of kids music called earthlings that's original music that he wrote and he's including on the album the kids so this weekend he asked me I was in book writing hell so I was like eager to find any <laughs> opportunity. He said, can you come and film? I know, exactly. Can you film the kids? And I was like, absolutely. Like, I'm there. I'm on it. go down. And I filmed the kids. And there were two groups. And they both sang like completely joy. These kids were adorable, by the way, you guys. They're in third grade. And they have the headphones where you can hear your own voice. Plus, you can hear everybody else. But it sounds really weird. They were just, they were like, this is so weird. I can hear you. Can you hear me? They were like, in this whole studio and all this. But one group was not. Really on key at all. And the other group was like really pretty good. And Ian whispered to me at one point, These kids aren't, this group isn't maybe going to be on all of the album, but I wanted them to have the experience. And I just was really touched by that because what I was seeing was joy in those children's voices making something, being part of something. They were like, We're going to be on album. We're going to make this thing. And I also saw it in Ian around this work that I'm doing is not actually paid. But it is still work. You have to put in all the effort, and he is actually paying for us, like you said, with the podcast, Eleanor. Whereas a self-funded entrepreneur, you invest. I feel like that's true for me too. Everything I do, including this podcast, is my investment in the impact I want to have in the world, and it brings us joy to do those things. So for me, the connection of like how much joy is also connected to what is work. Right? Some of the work we do as entrepreneurs is not actually the work that pays us, but it still qualifies as work. And May, as a creative, I'm sure you experience that all the time, you know, where you're taking photographs, maybe some of the photographs you take are paid, but I see some of the photographs you take that are not paid. That is not only work, but it's art. It's something so beautiful. And so that all, both of those things matter. And I think so, I think we sometimes really dumb down this whole idea of joy at work because we make it all storm and drang work, work, mm-hmm. and work. No, actually there are things that maybe qualify as work for us because of the effort they take, but mm-hmm. they bring us also those moments. And maybe it's like the peaks of moments we're looking for of joy. I don't know. Mm-hmm. I love it.
1: Eleanor, it, it makes me think about your, your first reason for working that you gave and the second one. They're connected in that way that if you can... For me, at least what I heard is that when you can see into the larger picture of what you are leaving behind, of what your legacy will be in all aspects of it, one of it is also that the larger legacy cannot all be paid. Like It cannot, it just logistically can't, that can't be it. So the work also yes. has to be unpaid. It has to be sweat that's happening somewhere else for the larger purpose. And yeah. I think that does require a little bit of earning time. Because to be able to see that big, you have to be at a certain spot to be able to see that large out into the world of, okay, here's what it's worth, here's what it's for.
2: A hundred percent. And I, yeah. And just to, to stay with that point for a minute, because I think this could be really useful for folks who are listening. The way that I look at it is I created this these sort of quadrants of innovation, because a lot of work is, hey, there's a big tough problem or a little tough problem (laughs) that I need to solve and to do it consistently and sustainably over time, especially as a business owner, as an entrepreneur, you're going to have to innovate. And I think about these four quadrants. And so if you imagine four squares and at the top left, you've got quadrant one, and that's all about your deep expertise in your area. And so it's very focused on an area that you just go deep. If it's a f- photographer, it's the, the technical pieces of photography. If it's co- workplace culture, It's really knowing your stuff around workplace culture, right? And so there's a real subject matter discipline there that quite frankly, like that just required. And to your point, May and Mo, sometimes you're putting in a lot of time there to acquire this expertise, right? And some of that time could get paid. Some of it, you're not paid. Some of it, you're paying if you're a student. So there's that. Then you move over to the next quadrant and that's quadrant two. And that is the broader implications, of that research, So if we think mm-hmm. about being experts in workplace culture, this probably has a lot to do with social determinants of health. It has a lot. To, it has huge impacts in terms of mental well-being that broadly influence. We go down to the next one bottom. That's quadrant three. That's all about your own sort of personal well-being and productivity. Do you have the chops and the ability to actually turn stuff out or does it all just stay with you because you can't produce anything? Because that's a huge issue too, right? And then the fourth one is about the business model. And that's where you get paid. That's where you are produced. That's your job. That's where it all gets turned into money. And so I do really think that there are places in which, which are very much devoted to monetization. And we take care of those and we respect those because that's what makes everything move. But there are also places in our larger body of work that are about thinking, about relationships, and they're not necessarily
0: always about monetization. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I'm struck with something else. This is why I just love these kinds of conversations because, uh, of course, I'm taking notes as you talk, Eleanor, like I always do, right? (laughs) This is what happens when you're talking. (laughs) But I was thinking about deep. The deep expertise is part of what I think we mean by earned. Yes. It's to get to the thing. And I was thinking about that watching Ian this weekend too, because I could no more do what he did. He's singing five harmonies. He's playing four instruments. He's rallied 17 other musicians. He's written the song. He's coached the kids. He's gotten the permission from the kids' parents. He's doing all of these things that I, most of them, 90% of those skills, I could not do because I have not earned the skill that he has, even though he's much younger than me, obviously, in his niche, in his Mm -hmm. niche, which is as a musician and as a creative. And so that for me is very helpful to think about in terms of earning joy. And I think about that myself in my own career sometimes around actually, I can do some of what I do now with ease, because I've put in the time. And I don't know Mm -hmm. if it's the 10,000 hours, but in many cases, it is that it is the time. And that takes like perseverance some hard knocks that we have to go through that only time really facilitates as we grow into our career. Mm-hmm. So it's fascinating to think about all of that melded in together. And I want to narrow for a minute because Eleanor, your, your purpose for your business and for your work is very much centered on women entrepreneurs and As my practice has not targeted women entrepreneurs necessarily, although we love (laughs) working with them. We've worked with a lot of kinds of entrepreneurs and also leaders in other sectors, many of whom are men. I'm watching from the outside right now, or really from the inside as a woman entrepreneur myself, and I feel like I've been watching this slow movie for the last 30 years, which is like what's happening in real entrepreneurship. And it's upticked. In post-COVID-19, but I'm curious about what you're seeing. Like mm. what you seeing in the world of entrepreneurship in general, in our current global meta environment, but also women's entrepreneurship in particular.
2: It's interesting. So for at least the last, over the course of the last decade, the number of women who have been moving to entrepreneurship? So the rate of women starting businesses has just been increasing every year. Yeah. I think in the United States, women are starting about fourteen hundred businesses each and every day.
1: We'll I'll pause sure. that for
0: a moment. That's a lot of businesses. That's Amy. a lot of businesses. 1400 okay, 1,400
2: businesses. Yeah. Yes. It's huge. It's yes. huge. So there, women are starting just under half of all businesses in the United States. It's interesting in Canada. The rate of women starting businesses peaked in 2019 and Mm. it actually dropped by 37% in 2021. So I think that COVID created, Mm. like I can relate to this so much. It was a huge reckoning. It was global, one of the most massive events of many of our lifetimes, massive shift in terms of how we looked at what we want. There were big reevaluations happening and around that time, just before th- there were l- tons of women owned businesses. And in Canada, that rate actually started to drop off, hmm. and I think for a number of different reasons, I think that the bar to start a business has never been lower. And I say that in a th- that sounds shade like shade. It's not shade. <laughs> <laughs> it's like it's a good thing. You need a computer, an internet, and a phone, yeah. and so it's been incredibly accessible. But I think what we're seeing, my theory, is that when you look at what prompts people to start businesses. Some entrepreneurs are prompted because they see a real opportunity in the marketplace. And some entrepreneurs are prompted to start a business because they see it as a pathway to work-life balance. They saw it as a pathway to work-life balance. I did not see it as I have this big, I ha- I'm innovating the solution to solve this gap in the marketplace. And I think what many entrepreneurs start to uncover is that it is not necessarily, the path to work-life balance that they thought it was going to be. And that sometimes there are benefits to working inside an organization where you can be a part of a team. And as an entrepreneur, it takes time often to be able to get to the place where you are not doing everything. And I think a lot of folks are reckoning with themselves. Do I, okay, hang on a second. So It was easy to get to this place, to get to the next level of growth that I want to reach. I'm going to have to hire people. I'm going to have to do this and that. Do I want that? Do I want to to have that ownership and responsibility, or do I want to look at something different? So I actually see a lot of that happening right now in the sort of world of entrepreneurship. It's a bit of a correction in the best way possible. Yeah, in the best way possible.
0: Yeah, thank you for that. It's fascinating. And something that I've been researching a lot and get, gathering data around for the book is specifically about the recent dynamics that have been happening with all of the tech layoffs. Oh, and, yeah. the resignation. So we have these enormous data sets around not so much what's happening in entrepreneurship, but what's happening in big business in particular. Yeah. And so I, I would add actually like a third motivation that I see and hear from right now. I hear it the most From women, but I also hear it from other outsider groups Mm. and women of color, LGBTQ plus communities who are actually leaving in reaction to toxicity, Mm -hmm. which we know was the number one contributor to the great resignation of so many millions of jobs happening in 20, it was in 2021, but it's continued and persisted in 2022. And I think that's really informative for me as well, which is Which sets up people potentially for what you're describing, which is, oh, maybe I'm thinking it will be better, maybe around work-life balance, but maybe I get there and it's not. But at the same token, even if the work-life balance isn't better, I think people are feeling, I'm hearing anyway, that people are feeling more ability to stay grounded in their values, to keep their schedule flexible if they're a caregiver of any kind, or they just can't do it. They just can't do what it is that big business in particular is asking of them anymore, because it's too toxic. And I think that has huge implications for employers, Mm -hmm. the big ones, especially, but even for the little ones who are hiring people who come with trauma experiences Mm -hmm. from toxicity into their next job or their role as an entrepreneur. So some really interesting and potent trends that are very specific right now.
2: Absolutely. And it starts to, and it's fascinating for those of us who are really in the business of demystifying entrepreneurship, creating models for folks to follow, especially because outside so much of what we understand about entrepreneurship and so much of the way entrepreneurship is taught is very much anchored in other types of businesses. So a huge gap was seen in the marketplace. The market for X is growing rapidly. Think about companies like Uber, Airbnb. There's a market for this that is growing. There's an opportunity that technology has emerged that we could do this. We have this solution. We're going to grow the market ourselves. And so how you look at growth in a company like that is really different from how you look at the person who just launched an executive coaching practice. Yeah. It's very different. And I think understanding those different motivations, understanding what success looks like, and really supporting with laying out clear pathways to help those folks get the job done that they're trying to get done. Yeah. So the world of entrepreneurship is fascinating. The world of work is fascinating right now.
0: It totally is. It totally is. a very dynamic time. I'm very activated right now about that. And I'm just going to underline something that I learned really with you, from you, that I talk to my team about all the time, but it's Mm -hmm. actually something I never thought about as an entrepreneur, which is this idea that the biggest difference I think that we see is self-funded. And I remember when COVID hit and the opportunity came up for me to seek some federal aid through the Payroll Protection Act and the EIDL, the idle loans here in the States to be able to keep my staff and keep my team going. I remember that when I got approved, I remember celebrating with my husband that night. And I said, I got my first investment. Yes. <laughs> like, the first investment is federal relief from a global <laughs> like You're like, not- that's what it
1: took. And <laughs> yeah. I'm holding it.
0: And I think that is not uncommon, right, especially for women entrepreneurs where we reserve, what is it, we're up to 2% of all funding for women entrepreneurs. So I don't think it's something that even occurs to women around, oh, I could get investment. There are a few, and I'm proud of the ones that are able to get investment, but it's a completely different dealio if you have investment investment in your organization from the beginning. And yes. maybe you're not turning a profit for five years, 10 years, 20 years even, because you're just raking even. That's not something that the entrepreneur whose self-funding has a luxury of thinking about. And I think that's a very profound difference and something to really get grounded in, certainly if you're thinking about entrepreneurship and making that transition. Yeah, really Absolutely, powerful. yeah. That is so powerful.
1: Eleanor, if you're looking out in the work world right now and it's a stormy ocean, are you seeing boats sinking and you're seeing boats floating? And will you tell us what you're noticing about the sinking boats? And will you tell us what you're noticing about the floating boats <laughs> and what it makes you worry about? Yeah,
2: this is such a great question. So I would say that the market is harsh and so corrective. So I come from a family of economists. So I always have a ton of faith in free markets. I really will, that are properly regulated, <laughs> just so you know, like where I come from. But I would say it's the boats that sink, and there's this saying, and I think it's true. You could have a great leader and good product in a terrible market, and that company would probably sink or plateau, You could similarly, you could have a terrible leader, a somewhat okay product in a growing market. And that Mm. is right. So the market always wins. Yeah. So there's this power. It's like gravity Mm. when there are, when you're tapping into groups of people who need something or want something that the growth of that market is almost always going to pull along even companies that aren't that great. Mm -hmm. And so I think that's this. And then again, this is something that I think a lot of times when we look at the type of supports and education for small businesses, we don't talk about that enough. So there's a lot of like, very surface level and my field is women's entrepreneurship. So that's where I'll focus, but I'm sure that this is true everywhere. You've got an idea. Go girl, let's do it. The sky's the limit, but there's not necessarily some of that rigor, which is really, okay, great. You've got this idea. Let's take a look. Like where's the need here is, how do we apply a little bit of rigor to help you shape this idea to give it the best chances of success? So I would say that in places where, the entrepreneurs tapping into a growing market is really powerful. And then the second thing I think right now, like we talked about how the world of work has everywhere where we have changed as a society. So everybody is asking themselves, what do I want? What are my new standards? What, And we know from research that's done by McKinsey that after crises, in like what we're living through right now. So, the crisis is basically behind us. In periods after that, what is so key is innovation, mm-hmm. really recognizing that things have changed and you have to change to keep pace. And so, I think that another part where, and the beauty there is that you can really take ownership of that. Are you innovating? Are you really researching your customers? Are you really. Are you cultivating the courage to let go of old ways of working and embrace new ways of working? Are you willing to do that? I think that I'm where folks are doing that I'm really seeing a lot of successes. It's where people are really trying to keep riding that old horse who's lame, who you know, is giving all the signals that they just want to be on greener pastures chilling and you're still trying to ride it. I think that those companies are having a harder time right now.
0: But I'm struck with what you're saying about that, and I like the—I really love the metaphor actually about the horse because I think that there's a very there's a lot of nuance to what you're saying. And we're seeing this with our clients right now too, but I'm also seeing it as an entrepreneur in my own business, which is that, and I wrote down, you know, what you said, like the market always wins, even when you have, because we get this question from clients a lot, especially employees or middle managers Mm -hmm. who are really hurting in their organization. And they're saying, how can my company be so successful when I have a toxic boss or the culture hasn't been tended to? And we're sometimes we're just like, because they're lucky, like Mm -hmm. they just happen to be able to be riding the wave of cash influx right now. Now, the thing that I see, though, that is also real for me is it probably won't last. And we've seen downfall after downfall of big company and big name companies that have fallen out of grace because over time, as they rode the quest of the money just coming in in bags, something comes up that says, hang on a second, this is toxic, this is bad. Now, if you're a mega company, I'll use Amazon's, as an example, almost no amount of bad news and toxicity is going to impact the trajectory because of what the market is saying it needs. But I think for the smaller business, which is most of where our clients are working, it's really important to recognize that you can't afford that. You can't, you don't have that kind of protection in your market of the money just coming in. And I even apply that to my own business, which is that I I think our business model is successful. I think we offer something that the market really needs, especially right now. But I think as an entrepreneur, I made the classic, I have historically made the classic mistakes that most consultants and coaches like me make, which is that I didn't, pay enough attention to the nuances of how it would be that people would find their way to the products Mm -hmm. that I wanted to offer. And I think that's rigor. And Mm -hmm. that's a specific exploration of your sales system, of your marketing, of really understanding how it is your clients digest the work that you offer. And I think there's lots of people out there that are running, especially probably service firms like I am, Mm -hmm. they can get by for a long time without actually doing that work and still make enough money to sustain themselves. What finally brought me to you and to to brought our organization to you two years ago was that we can't have the impact in the world that we want if we can't actually scale. Because I am really committed to making workplaces good for people because I believe it's better for the entire world, for Mm -hmm. communities families and for the entire world. And that's what I want. I want my children and your children and our grandchildren to really be able to find workplaces that bring out their best. And so it's the mission that drives me to be willing to bring the rigor of the nuance of it, really understanding how it comes into the market in a way that's palatable make make sense, et cetera, rather than just staying small.
2: And that to me speaks to this idea of skill stacking and stacking up skills. And so it's, you have this incredible skill as a technician and consultant in your area. And then for a while, we're building that skill. So I can do it with a small group. Can I do it with a bigger group? Can I do it with a, can I take on, I can do it with a mid-sized project. Can I do it with a large scale project, multi-year project? And all of those continue to be the growing skill sets within that consultant's toolkit. And yeah. then when we think about layering on top of that, the discipline of entrepreneurship, not as in, can you get up at five every day, but entrepreneurship as a discipline, just like math is a discipline. That is really interesting because usually by the time that's where I just wish everybody would just read Carol Dweck's book, quite frankly, <laughs> And before because it's like that because what is yes, people often at the peak of their game in that consulting and deep technical expertise in their area. And now they need to go back to being to unlearning potentially like more beginner's mindset it's tough it's way tougher and we're I know we're going to talk about leadership and was it learned and to me like entrepreneurship and leading a growing company is very practical tactical hands-on leadership because you're you have to you're constantly confronted with what you don't know Uh, you're constantly having to build the plane as you fly it that's what a high growth company looks like it's incredibly humbling and somebody has got to be the leader (laughs) You know what I mean? And so, yeah, I think what you're really describing is this idea of skill stacking and how challenging it is. And that's the thing you would see this all the time. And when we talk about toxic workplace cultures, one of the challenges that I have around that is it becomes, and so I'm going to challenge this and I, I would love to hear what you guys say. Cause again, I only get this part of stuff. I really only get from reading LinkedIn (laughs) <laughs> but the thing that I, the thing that i say sometimes, or I think to myself is I'll be like, okay. So I think about all the people that I know who work in large organizations, because usually those are like the ones that we tend to look at more as being toxic. You are the experts in this, but that's what I, it seems to be. And I'm like, none of them are toxic. So then that means that it's become, my thing is like, when we look at toxic workplaces and we look at people who've had real trauma from it. My question and my challenge around that is, but we're all just people, you know what I mean? And so where, if you're part of the, what I'm so curious about that, because this is a really important thing because, you know, we're talking about people who are themselves building companies and building cultures, but that's the part where it's like us, we are never toxic and them, these evil, toxic, people, but I don't actually personally know any, but I'm sure that they're part of it. I'm so curious what you guys have to say about, because there's so much shaming.
0: Thank you for listening to Let's Make Work Human. We firmly believe that it is all hands on deck. Every one of us at work can make a difference to building workplaces that bring out our best. If you agree and want support for how you can make a difference, head on over to our website, www dot momentum.com, that's m o e m e n t u m dot com or mocharick dot com to join our weekly show up newsletter chock full of inspiration tips and tools just for you if you connected to what Eleanor was pondering when she asks who are those toxic leaders since none of us think of ourselves as one you might be ready for a streamlined approach to developing yourself or the people leaders on your team to be good for people. Go to www.leadingpeopleprogram.com to learn more and apply now. Let's get back to the show.
2: Yes, totally. There's so much shaming and it's, it kills me because I'm like, that just is going to create so much entrenchment and it starts to... So I'm so curious what you guys have to say about this. I know we could talk about it all
0: day. Watch, totally. We're going to have a four-hour long podcast. Pom- I know, right? Sorry, <laughs> listeners. We're going I- there. That's right. We're going to tackle all the problems. I, <laughs> I love that you said shame because I think it, and it's such a great observation. None of us want to or probably think of ourselves as a toxic culture or a toxic leader and yet we see the data is like unequivocal out there about the majority of workplaces. And the big ones take the most heat for being toxic but they also get the most benefit for being good. You know what I mean? There's uh, a lot of everywhere. yeah. The big companies, I see that in my small to mid-sized companies who tend to read about the big companies or even the mega companies and sometimes find themselves wanting because they just can't do what a mega company can do in terms of resourcing and, and value, they can't offer hiring bonuses, or they can't offer retirement plus fertility benefits, plus they just they can't, they don't have that kind of cash. So they sometimes make up that it's all about the cash. But I don't think I personally don't think shaming anybody is going to help us. I really don't. I don't (laughs) think it's going to help us. Shame is never known to drive positive behavior. Thank you, Dr. Brené Brown, another one of my mentors. (laughs) Right. Like I really appreciate what Dr. Brown has put out there in the world around what we know about because it only drives unhealthy behavior. So then if we don't shame, if we stop ourselves from being shaming and blaming about toxicity, we have to look within and we have to say, okay, what is causing a feeling of toxicity in the world of work and how might I be causing it? And I would say that as a leader myself of a small business, I definitely can put my finger on some of the ways that I've shown up at times that have contributed to pain and suffering, for lack of a better word, of my employees, not because I meant to, mm-hmm. not I wanted to, but because in my own response to pressure, in my own insecurity, in my own Struggling to find my own way, I've inadvertently contributed to something like somebody not feeling heard or seen, somebody having to overwork in order to do what it is that we're trying to do together. And I like to think that in my organization, those missteps are corrected and that we learn through them together. And I think generally we try to. But it is helpful for me from a place of humility to recognize that too is toxicity. Mm. The second piece I was going to add about that, Eleanor, is we do a lot of culture assessment on organizations. And one of the things that I find fascinating is when a culture assessment comes back, the majority of people, the most culture assessments are generally, they, they all have strengths. Some of them are extremely good. But even in a really positive culture assessment that comes back with a third party and perfectly re- researched tool, there's usually some pockets of mm. cultural lack of health. Mm-hmm. And one of the ways we discover the pockets is we look at the demographic response, who is respo- who is responding, which department, which level, or even which demographics, like race, ethnicity, gender identity, etc. And what I find really very interesting is when we start slicing it by the pockets, we start to see that the view of health looks very different based mm-hmm. on where you sit and how you identify. So if I'm a white woman working in a healthcare organization that is mostly white women, I may experience my culture as the best ever. Mm-hmm. But if I'm a trans man in that culture, I may experience that environment as toxic. Which is it? Which is it? And I say both. Mm-hmm. It's both. And so we have to be courageous enough to not shame, but to look at that and say, why Why are we not as supportive? Why do we not create as much belonging? Why do we not have as much nurturing behavior to some people as we do to others? And I'm using a diversity dimension of demographic, but it could also be even a whole class of people. I can remember many years ago, I was working with airlines. I was working with, I think it was Alaska Airlines that was talking about this, where pilots are like, their pilots are God much like providers are God in medicine. So they get they have a whole different set of rules about what they can do and how they roll in the company compared to the mechanics. Now, if you ask me, like the mechanics matter a lot to whether my plane's gonna have a problem, but it may in fact feel less easy to be in that culture based on my job class in addition to my other dimensions of identity. So I think we have to unpack that even in a tiny company like mine. My company looks different for me as the founder and CEO than it does for you, Mate as a director of community and of a four-person staff. And so I think the courageous act is for me to, and you talk about this a lot, Eleanor, is for me to be curious about how you see it. (laughs) For me to pause to ask you, how are you finding this working? Is this working for you? Is this not working? Why or why not? Because that's the only way I can pivot and adjust to reduce the likelihood of toxicity causing problems.
1: So that's some of how I would respond to what you're saying. We had a very funny, there's a whole podcast episode, actually, of Mo and I wrestling with this question. And it's very funny, one, because Mo is sitting in an elevator shaft, essentially, because she was <laughs> traveling. And and it's actually like a very good episode around like us wrestling on this question of can you be toxic and healthy at the same time? And can you have toxic pieces and not be toxic? Can you oh, have yeah. toxicity and not be toxic? As I remember, I think we got to the point of it's unavoidable. <laughs> like we, mm. if you're going to count toxicity as as mess up, but you're going to count mm. health as ability to repair, then you can be both. Mm. And you should look for the repair actually if you feel like you can smell toxicity in the air. It was actually kind of an unsatisfying answer for me because I wanted it to be very black and white. I wanted it to be like mm. some places are garbage and some places are wonderful. Good night. Yeah, <laughs> and that was not the case. So much easier. So much
2: easier. <laughs> So much easier. Yeah,
0: but it reminds and me it, what you're saying yeah. may reminds me a lot, even of our health journey, right? Of our own personal well being in terms of toxicity. I was thinking about this weekend because again, I was in the writing dark hole, and I had there was only one thing that I could do to feel better on Saturday night, and that was to eat the most ginormous burger and fries mm. with a giant can of cider because delish, it, delish. I just was mentally exhausted. And I know that that if I ate hamburgers Mm -hmm. and french fries and cider every single meal, I would be toxic. That is not Mm -hmm. good for my body over Mm -hmm. a lot of time. But every now and then, it is something that I just do or I have to do. And we all do. We make decisions about our well-being that are not always upward healthy. What we're looking for is a trajectory over time. And I feel that's true about this dynamic of culture. We're looking for genuinely conscious and thoughtful sensitivity about cultural dynamics that help minimize or eliminate toxicity over time. But it doesn't mean it's not going to happen at all, ever.
2: What I was thinking about was how I know as if I look at being a leader and growing a company, you have to do so much work yourself to be able to be capable of doing that. And it's always been about, I think about myself, there's parts of myself that are not my favorite parts. And I used to think that it was about eradicating those parts. <laughs> right. I used to think I'm just gonna get rid of them. So first I just need to identify and then <laughs> eradicate. And, and of swatch. course, like yeah. And of course that never works. And so you invest so much energy trying to get rid of this piece mm. when a real answer is an answer of wholeness. And what I'm hearing, because again, my whole thing with toxicity has been like, but these are people. Yes. Right. These are real people on both sides. Yeah. And so we typically hear the people who feel like they're victims of toxicity. Yeah. But I'm like, how is it possible that there are hundreds of toxic, bad people? That defies logic yes. to me. Like that defies, okay. it, it really is not in. Now, uh, there are, <laughs> there are people who are totally... So, to what you're saying, it, when we when you look at the math of it, if the numbers are hold that it's as rampant as it is, and our experience of humans is what it is, then it's less about cutting it out than about acknowledging that everybody's toxic is toxic. Everybody has toxic. and it's about wholeness. How do we make space understand? That's, as you guys were talking about it, that was the picture that was coming through a different way of understanding a different way of looking at it, which again, you're, you guys are the experts in this, but I was, as you were sharing, that's what came to me that, that it's about wholeness.
0: It's about wholeness. And yes, I love that. And it's also about the willingness to really dig in to yeah. what's real. Like you talked about your own self-awareness and how that desire to eradicate the parts of you that were undesirable. And to mm-hmm. me, this is the essential work of leadership right? Because, you know, who we are is how we lead and self-awareness is key. And so I've got to really know me. And then as I know me, I become more capable of knowing you, which means I can actually focus on specifically what are the conditions in which you thrive? Because looking at the two of you right now, May and Eleanor have probably different needs Mm -hmm. in terms of how they're going to be able to bring out their best at work. And I think that as leaders, we just wish it would be easier. We wish it would be easier. And I'm reminded about, of one of my favorite bosses. May's heard me talk about Anne. Anne Smolo was a huge mentor of mine when I had young children. She was also a young parent. She was brilliant. One of the things she was really brilliant at was selling Mm -hmm. and very skilled. I loved being in the room with her. I loved working with clients with her. And she was difficult, she was difficult. She was very (laughs) good on the disc instrument. For those of you that might be listening that know it, she was like an off the chart D, like really dominant style, like controlling. And it was difficult to work with Anne at times because what I sometimes felt was, A, I felt diminished. I felt less than almost all the time because she could pretty much do whatever I could do faster, better, and more thoroughly. So there was some comparative shaming that went on. The other thing was that sometimes she just was a chronic interrupter. She didn't listen very well. That was one of her big opportunities. And so in order to work well with her, and we had a really fruitful partnership, I had to get my brave on. I had to figure out how I was going to tell her about the impact she had on me. When I did, because she is, as you said, Eleanor, she was a just a normal human. She was not intending to be disruptive. She certainly didn't believe that I was less than her. In fact, she specifically recruited and promoted me on her team because of what I brought that she didn't have. Mm -hmm. But I had to be willing to sometimes ask for her to remind me of that when I was feeling demoralized or to let her know, hey, I feel like there's no room in this meeting right now for my ideas. You said you wanted all of our ideas, but right now you're taking all the air out of the room. And when that happened, she was willing and able to hear it. It's one of the reasons I think she was such a good leader is she was capable of saying, you're right. Thank you. I'm going to listen. I'm gonna change that behavior right now. Doesn't mean I won't do it again tomorrow. I will interrupt you again tomorrow. And she did. But she also had the capacity to flex and be more agile with her leadership to cultivate the best. And I've talked to colleagues that have worked with Anne, that worked with Ann at the same time as me. And we all have the same story about her, one of the best leaders we ever worked for. And did she personally
2: very- promote you? Yeah. Did she choose you for her team? Yes. Then maybe a big part of being a good leader is also being a good picker. Absolutely. Because there was, there would be so many people in that situation who, because of temperament style would not be a match for that because they yes. would not be able to say there's no air. Yes. You know what I mean? And so that, I think, I think about that. You said that she was great at sales, which I'm like, I love Ann already, but I think about that because sales is about really effective sales is about who's not going to thrive in this thing. Who's not going to. And I think that there's a part of that too, which is she potentially she picked or there was something about the culture that was allowing her to show up in her wholeness, yep. which is never perfect, but that's there was right. at least space. You did have to get your brave on, which I'm sure was, that's so hard, but mm-hmm. that the people that were on her team were able to do that. I wonder if that was conscious, like, cause that's, fascinating when people can show up in the fullness of who they are, which is almost always complicated. Yes. You know, without all the energy it takes always to suppress parts that we just know, but they're also powerful and to make space for people to be able to challenge in the real time. Like to me, that's, I'm so fascinated by Anne and that whole dynamic that she had, that you guys collectively had going on. Because it was a
0: collective, it feels like. It was a collective. And also she was willing to not have all the answers, which is the vulnerability of saying, of her being willing to say, I messed up, I did this wrong. And that's something I try to model with my team. And I think when I do, May would be able to say better. And if it's not true, you don't have to say it publicly on this podcast. (laughs) (laughs) Just give a hand signal. I do (laughs) Give a hand signal. When I say to my team, I messed up, right? And I'm accountable for my part Mm-hmm. they are also accountable for their parts, mm-hmm. which allows us mm-hmm. to move faster. Yeah. Because they're like, yep, I messed up, did it, I'll fix it. Thanks for pointing it out. As opposed to all the silent hiding of things that go wrong that can happen in any organization when the leader isn't modeling imperfection, mm-hmm. which I think is something that Ann did really well, which leads me to this question that we wanted to make sure to have you weigh in on. Do you think, Eleanor, that leadership, and we could even connect leadership with entrepreneurship Mm -hmm. in terms of who you work with? Because I think you've made a strong case that in many ways, they're the same. Is this stuff learned or is it innate? Nature versus nurture. Yeah.
2: Again, I know LinkedIn would say that it is 100% learned, (laughs) I everybody wants to teach it. I would, I honestly think, yeah. Like I, my honest belief is that it is both. Yeah. I definitely think like it is, I think it's mostly learned. Mm -hmm. I think it's a skill Mm -hmm. and it's, I think the majority of leadership is earned, earned and earned through tremendous humility. And I, it is really like to step up and lead something you're constantly faced with what you don't know, your limitations, and other people pay for them. And that's yeah. like the worst part. Like, yeah. I've, I personally find that the hardest thing, and that's mm-hmm. why I feel like leadership is such a privilege. You're just like the limitations that you have in a leadership role. They, especially in business, they do impact other people, and that yeah. it's just this constant awareness that you understand. And there's a there's that's why it is just such a privilege. So I definitely feel like there's things that are learned. It's primarily learned. But what I'll say is that there are. People who have a natural presence that lends itself very effectively. It makes it a lot easier. And there's just this ability to step into that role with greater ease. And it usually has to do with some sort of unnameable presence, but it's often, I would say, willingness. It's this sort of innate thing. So I think that I definitely see that. And whether that's forged through childhood experiences or it could be anything, but I see that and I can't unsee it in term in this discussion. So I think that makes it easier. <laughs> and I have you see them all over the place and you can feel it. You can see what starts to happen. There's just this ability to step into that, but I that is definitely the smaller part. I feel like that's a much smaller part <laughs> than all of the other stuff that you do have to learn, how to allow people to make mistakes, how to set a clear vision, how to delegate ownership, not just execution, how like so many aspects of being a good leader who can work with a team of people to bring a vision to life. I think most of it is learned, but some of it is, it feels to me to be innate.
0: Yeah. I'm curious. I'll weigh in on my opinion in a second too, but I'm curious because you both have been competitive athletes. You don't know that about each other, but I know it. May was a Division One swimmer. What? Um, yeah, yeah. Wow. But I think that's. I think that there is something very interesting in what you both have seen in coming up to your professional positions through sports as young people around who innately or naturally takes the position, gets the MVP, mm-hmm. or even mm-hmm. becomes the coach or is the coach. And you who even more- wants the ball.
2: Yeah, who right. wants the ball? <laughs> and so you can tell when you're in the flow of a game mm-hmm. who doesn't actually really want the ball, not because they're not talented, because they just don't want that pressure. <laughs> don't make me. No. Mm-hmm. And then there's some people who are like, get the ball in my hands right now. Okay. We all know I'm making this.
1: That yeah. to me
2: is, yeah, that's interesting. Yeah.
1: Eleanor, are you speaking from experience of being the one that does have the presence? Are you speaking from the crowd of watching the person? who has the presence and you have experienced it before.
2: Yeah, both. And also watching and just also watching and and waiting, seeing the potential, but seeing people really struggle to step up. And that's not, I think it was Brene Brown. I remember listening to a podcast interview with her who was talking about one of the great burdens of our age, which is that, that the burden of significance Mm -hmm. that people feel a huge pressure to be significant. And it actually creates a lot of issues. And I think that whole thing, we are taught everybody's special. You need to be this, you need to be, well, yes. And so personal leadership is really key and that sense of agency in your own life. But inside groups of people, I have definitely seen things break apart when somebody will not step up. And so they might have the talent, they might have the, but they don't. And part of that presence, I guess, to your point, it's such a good question, May. I feel like a part of that is wanting it, Mm -hmm. wanting that ownership, not every, and I honestly think if you don't have the desire to want that ownership or want that, then it is maybe that's the part that is innate and that's the part Mm -hmm. that we feel from folks. So I've certainly seen it and it doesn't mean that they can't change but you can often see it. Do they want it or not? And sometimes people only want it because they were told by their, they read in a book that you should,
0: but they don't. Yeah. Or it's, only, it's the only path to success too, yes. which is something I think we see in organizations where there's one way that you can continue to get promoted and that is yeah. to be a people leader. And yeah. other than that, your career is going to die in the vine. I think companies are mm-hmm. good ones are getting smarter around actually there are other paths to excellence besides yes. being a people leader. May, you've talked a lot about significance in terms of a generational difference as a millennial around the generational pressure to be of significance. Save the world, um, you mean? To save yeah. The world. Yes. <laughs> that, I'm sweating
2: already.
1: Oh my God. Yeah, I know. It's a lot. Uh, it's a lot for you, that... May. Oh, thanks. No, I'm trying to let it go. But I think that there's a little bit, there's this conversation around in the millennial generation that I can tell, especially around people that identify as women, that we watch mothers do wild things, do push against massive boulders. And we are also aware of what's happening in the world and how much more there is to go and whose job is that. And I think there has been this vision of not only is it our job, but we will let our mothers down. If we don't do it, mm-hmm. and our daughter's down, and it's oh no, <laughs> oh talk about a sandwich generation. We're like feeling the pressure of the earth is burning. Also, the economy. Also, do you own your own company yet? Also, did you make the beds? Also, are they eating vegetables? Like it's so much that you're in charge of. I think that we're just starting to feel the pressure of it. And then my my feeling is that then we will end up with all of these autoimmune diseases because we're feeling the press mm-hmm. of these hopefully we're getting ourselves out of it because we're realizing it's not all on us and that we were sold a lie in terms of why we have to do it and mo and i had a great conversation around that every generation actually was sold the same kool-aid just a different flavor and that we're just Mm. getting wise to our flavor now we're like no Mm. this can't be all our job like we can't be in charge that is so
2: fascinating yeah that is so fascinating
1: yeah. And yeah. what
0: you're saying, man. I know we, we have to wrap up, but like, I'm struck with the shift of what you're describing as your mother, what you saw in your mother and what you now feel on behalf of Crosley, like this pressure I'm struck with what we know also is true for the culture of men, which is yeah. this historical overburdened pressure to in particular, financially support everybody. And we're seeing a crisis in men at, as I have spoken about frequently. And I wonder, so have we just transferred it now? We're just like, okay, with the rise of feminism, <laughs> just like, accountability for solving all the problems, we put it now on one gender identity. Let's just share the all of it and also not have to always be so significant. And the piece I would add to the like leadership nature and nurture, because I think I agree hundred percent with what you're saying, Eleanor, I think most of it can be learned. The big thing for me, and it's almost, you know how when you buy a new car mm-hmm. and then like never had a car that was that color or make. Until you have it now. And then you're like, every single car I see is a brown Chevy pickup truck. Like that's every car I see. Is that right? For me, it's the same. I feel like everything I see around leadership capacity is connected to emotional intelligence. Mm -hmm. And I believe emotional intelligence is a skill you can learn. But I also think that some people are born with it, Mm -hmm. more of it just like probably the ability to analyze numbers. Like yeah. some brains yeah, are yeah. just better. This is a brain activity. Some brains are better at that or be able to memorize texts. And I think some brains are better at emotional intelligence and then others are not. And But either way, we can learn that capacity. And I think that's part, a lot of what we see in the soft, squishy realm of is someone a natural leader is actually mm-hmm. about they understand the data that's available to them emotionally inside of themselves and between others and they can leverage it. Mm-hmm. Like, use it to drive behavior. Yes.
1: Right. My experience with like Division One sports and with sports in general, it was never that, oh, she's a natural leader. It was that she's a good leader. And everybody else mm-hmm. was, a. I just assumed then was a bad one. You either weren't a leader or you were a bad one because oh. it, you're always just a good leader. And the good leader mm-hmm. was never the one that was like, like, there's a lot of talk about leading from behind and all those things. Mm-hmm. Sure. But also, I understood that a good leader was the one that was also swimming in the middle lane and was mm-hmm. the anchor of the relay. There was no miscommunication to me.
0: Yes, so I'm wondering,
1: yeah. Eleanor, like where, you're, yeah. where you have turned the corner in terms of how you see leadership now? I'm assuming that you learned a similar lesson to me. Mm-hmm. And then now what do you know about leadership and how did you make the bend around that? Mm, yeah. Yeah. I love this question so much. Definitely there's
2: like this and we don't talk about this much anymore, but we, we, if we go back to this idea of earned, I do think you have to earn the respect of your team. I really mm-hmm. do think that just, cause that's called, if you don't, it's just external authority. Here's the privilege yeah. of my position that I, and so that feels, so I definitely think there's a thing, which is around earning the respect of your team through the yeah. demonstration of skill And we don't ever talk about that, but that's a part of it. Like you've got to have some game in, but you can't win it on your own. And NCAA was a great example of that. Caitlin Clark is like a generational player for the the Hawkeyes, for all of NCAA. And as good as she was, she could not beat LSU where everybody was stepping up. Everybody was stepping up and killing it together. And so what I've really learned are a couple of things about leadership that has changed, that has shifted over time. It Me being super awesome at something can actually be the biggest reason we won't be able to be successful with it. <laughs> yeah, right Right. There. Because it just means yeah. that then that's the thing. And so really learning that me being super awesome at something is not a signifier for how successful we can be as a team. So I think there's that. I've really mm. learned about that sometimes being a star player, you, when star players get under pressure, they start doing everybody's job. They, st- mm-hmm. they often You can often see this happening. If they're not involved enough, they will stop trusting their team. And so mm-hmm. that's another thing that I've totally had to work through and still struggle with sometimes when I'm under pressure everywhere. And I still play sports because of this is such a good reminder mm-hmm. when I'm under pressure or I'm tired or I, I overplay everything. I get out of my area. I get, I'm trying to do other people's jobs and that, that kills a team. You can't win that way. So I've definitely learned that. And I've also really learned that people have different roles on a team and some people have a much bigger role than others do, but it's not, they're not more valuable.
1: Mm -hmm. And
2: I think that's like another thing that i have learned
1: i love those yeah. there's also um, a very large message out there that if you are a good athlete you will be a good leader talk about linkedin like yeah a dime a dozen of the dudes that are like you know what i play yes. awesome basketball so i'm great at business and i'm like yeah show me the receipts friend i don't <laughs> think so
0: like <laughs> yeah it's like mountain it's the myth of the mountaineer as well yeah. yes. if i'm ever i'm, I'm going to be able to lead your company are you yeah yeah. <laughs> that, um, yeah that's so oh, that inter- interesting that's an interesting I perspective know. you're offering but you're right because it, it's like we think the attributes of that let's say that athletic agility or whatever that finely tuned skill is going to apply what this is a total aside but it makes me think you don't necessarily hear people saying that yo-yo ma should be like the ceo of amazon yeah. but like we don't attribute in other fields of high talent like playing the cello, that means he's now an amazing leader. I suspect Yoyama actually might be. Mm. But I just wrote down what you were saying, Eleanor, because I it ties in so beautifully to what we teach in our signature program, which is the leading people program around the no we call it the no heroes journey, mm. which is like this idea, you can't actually do all the things as a leader. And it's yeah. a really persistent myth, I think, in organizations is. Is that I should be able to probably. And again, I wasn't on sports teams like you two were, so I don't know. But I can imagine the pressure and the myth that would come from being a star player, where maybe early in your career, you could actually save the team, save the day, you probably have a big track record of doing that. And then you get to that uber competitive level or the Olympics or whatever. And now all of a sudden, it's like, no, actually, this is a team. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. even in a sport like swimming where the points are cumulative. And so I think that's very true yeah. in leadership, in real leadership in organizations, is that especially in small companies that are trying to scale, the leader will just die on the vine if they keep trying to do it all. They just, they won't be able to scale and they will suffer deleterious consequences in terms of their own health and their own well-being mm-hmm. if they do that. And we see it, that's probably the most persistent disruptive behavior I think we see in leaders in small organizations is that myth of I can do it all and I w- and I must solve all the problems
2: Oh absolutely yeah absolutely yeah it's and it's such a hard thing to one of the things that I find the most fun and challenging and rewarding and brutal about the path of being a leader is is what it is all of this stuff in practice. It's super fun to talk about it and laugh about it. And, and we're laughing about, like, I can laugh about trying to do all the things and like being that person who will do that when I'm under pressure, but then when I'm going through a period where I'm under pressure and I'm knee jerk reacting and doing it that way, it's so not fun. You know what I mean? It's so not fun. And I try. Yeah. And you have, it's, it is that communication. It is. And it's so much about vulnerability. It is so much about if you see me doing this, Let's just have a code word. Like it could be a code word. Just say muskrat. Because you can't tell, right? Just say muskrat or it's the hand signal, whatever. We have just really finding as a team, creating the structures for each other. But as a leader, you do have to go first and show people that it's safe to do that. Yes, that, you totally. that You want that. You want
0: that. Yeah. Yeah. And even when you think you're good at it, you're not. And like a tiny story that is just re- present in my mind right now, which May knows about. Which is that I just did this weekend. Mm -hmm. I entered the writing cave of hell on Friday. I worked (laughs) all weekend on a document that I basically, it basically drove me crazy to the point where last night I was crying in my tea at eight o'clock because I felt like I'd lost an entire weekend of productivity because the document didn't work. There were formatting problems. It never occurred to me to reach out to my talented person, May Ratz, who translate the file into a different mechanism. This morning, when I finally did reach out for help after talking myself off the ledge about my last weekend, May fixed the problem for me in about four minutes. And I, when you said that, May, she slacked me, try this one. And I opened it up. I'm like, that one is solving all of my prayers. but And it's really fascinating for me that I didn't even ask. And when I ask myself why, it's because I thought that this was only mine to do. Yes. That's what I thought. This is only mine to do. I'm the one who committed to writing this weekend. And I'm the one who has to write the book. And I'm the one who has to suffer through this formatting issue, which is a lie that I was telling myself. But I was telling it to myself for the good reasons that leaders always tell themselves that which is that this is only mine to do. And it's just wrong.
2: Yeah. And yeah. it also yeah. loops back to that thing that we're talking about at the beginning of the episode, which is that if it's work, it sucks. And right. it's you no, know, sometimes, sometimes if it's work, it's good. People, we all derive meaning from helping each other and from yes. work. Even if, like a friend of mine, I had this tea party on the weekend and a friend of mine, super successful, like she owns this huge business. She's just a baller. And she messaged me and she's, I can come over early and help you prep. And my first response was no, no. Are you kidding? No, don't, you know, no, I, I'm a, I got it. And then I was like, what are you doing? Yes, you know what it's like. You are not good at getting, re- get, getting ready for these things. So some help and emotional support would be awesome. Cause I, it's not my jam. And so she comes over and so we were chatting and we were putting together these sandwiches. It was really fun. And then she said afterward, when we were discussing it as a group of women at my party and, and she said, we were reflecting on how our knee jerk reaction is always to say no to help among the people there that is. And, but she messaged me later and she said, you know what? Helping people out in practical ways is my happy place. I really appreciate that. We could yeah. just have this time together and that you were cool with me coming to do that because it makes me feel more comfortable being at the
0: party. And I was like, oh, it's like, so- it is is almost exactly what May said in her <gasps> Slack. I'm so glad you let me help. It makes me feel valued, right? Like and, these ballers yeah. who are like, and we're like, oh no, <laughs>
2: I never want to burden this baller with this
0: on the weekend. No, I'm no. never going to do
2: that. Never. That would be awful of me. I need to do this myself.
0: myself. Make those sandwiches by myself. Make those
1: sandwiches. Jesus, we do it all the time. (laughs)
0: We
1: do it all the time. (laughs) This is a great segue, actually, Eleanor. Will you tell everybody who's listening, really wonderful, capable, good people who are willing to help and are excited now about you, will you tell them how they can support your work?
2: Oh. I would be specific. The most specific thing that you could do to support my work is to come on over to listen to an episode of Anchored Intelligence. It's connected to some of the themes. This is what you guys do around leading people and creating cultures where people love their work is, is like 10 out of 10. And then we'll take like little pieces of that and explore that in Anchored Intelligence. So it's about strategy. It's about leadership. It's about culture. It's about growth. So go over, check out that show and you can subscribe or follow it. That's the best thing that people can do to support our work.
0: And we will link it in the show notes. For awesome. sure, give it a listen if you haven't. I'm really loving it. Like I said, it was a great podcast before. It's how I found your work, Ella, Yay. back in the day. But Anchored Intelligence is like a up a step, a whole step up. Thank you you're doing it. so. Good job.
1: Thanks for being here, Eleanor.
0: Oh, this has been so fun. This was so
2: fun. Thank you so much to both of you.
0: Thank you. Mm-hmm. Thank you, May.